Welcome to Supreme Myths. My guest today is the uh, is Eugene Volokh, the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA. Eugene uh, received both his undergraduate degree and his law degree at UCLA. He clerked for Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit and Justice O'Connor of the Supreme Court. He is the author of numerous books, too many articles to begin counting. He is a member of the American Law Institute. He, of course, is the founder and currently runs, I believe, the Volokh Conspiracy, one of the most important, if not the most important, legal blog. And he is quite simply one of the leading authorities on the First Amendment in the United States. Eugene, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Always a great pleasure. It's good to see you. Um, so let's start with something not so, not so doctrinal. Um, why did you start the blog? When did you start the blog? What made you start the blog? And are you happy you started the blog? Because I'm a law professor and we like to talk. <laughs> and here comes 2001, fall of 2001, and I see Glenn Reynolds, University of Tennessee, starts up Instapundit. I'd known Glenn because he and I and some other people had co-written an article on the Second Amendment of all things. Um, and I start reading it. And then comes September 11th, and he has a lot of coverage of that. And I like his editorial judgment. I like his commentary, I liked his taste in what, what to link to, so I became a devoted reader, started pitching him various ideas for things, and then eventually, from him and from others, I got the message, start your own blog, and the first of them, oh, well, how could I do that? I've got a day job, I've got articles to write. And then, I think in March of 2002, I decided to jump in just to see. And we've been doing it for almost 20 years since. I started as the Volokh brothers. My brother, Alexander, who often goes by Sasha Volokh, who is now, now teaches at Emory yeah. uh, Law School, and I were there. And then we became the Volokh Conspiracy. There were four of us. And then eventually we grew because we realized that uh, this is the kind of endeavor that, that you don't want to do yourself because then uh, uh, you feel constant pressure to write something every day or else the readers will stop coming. And that means less fun. And it only works for us so long as it's fun. And it has been a lot of fun. And it also has helped me uh, helped me with my research. It helped me promote my research. It helped me ask questions of readers that have helped, uh, uh, helped um, uh, guide my research. It has gotten me in touch with lots of interesting people doing interesting things. Uh, and I've been very happy with it. So a couple questions about it. Uh... One, a new question, and one I asked you many years ago. I'm going to ask it to you again. Um, but the first question is this. So I blog regularly for Dorf on Law. I think you know that probably. Um, and um, before I wrote my book on originalism, I probably wrote 30 blog posts on originalism, maybe more, uh, that helped me write that book and were very important for me to get my thoughts across and get feedback and commentary and, and, and all of that. Several of those blog posts were fairly lengthy. I mean, you know, not lengthy, but 2,000 words maybe, you know, that kind of thing. If one writes 10 or 15 or 20 blog posts a year that are on substantive, legal, relevant issues, do you think that should count for scholarship? Because most people say no, and I'm not sure. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, uh, I don't. So I think what counts as scholarship is uh, discovery of new ideas things that nobody has known before. Uh, much of what I do on the blog is what might be called popularizing, which is conveying to my readers ideas that people know, people in the academy know, but the public may not know. So occasionally I might post something about 
the law of self-defense and how the duty to retreat operates, let's say, and the, the stand your ground versus duty to retreat debate. I, I like to think I'm, that's valuable. And it actually, at the UC um, uh, system for evaluating professors, that would count as service, right. like writing an op-ed would be service. But I wouldn't claim it's scholarship because it's, it's well known among, among those who know it. <laughs> um, uh, and every so often, I do indeed come up with really a new idea. And when I do, and I blog about it, I eventually, if I think it's a worthwhile idea, and sometimes I just sort of try it out, and I amend it in light of the feedback I get on the blog, well, then at that point, uh, uh, I write an article. So my article on treating uh, social media platforms as common carriers right. started out with a few blog posts, and then eventually I thought, you know, there's, there's something here that's worth saying. So then I folded them into the article and then completely rewrote them as one does in order to turn something into an effective article and then sure. elaborated until it's now 85 pages over 35,000 words. That's a lot longer than a blog post. But it's not just the length. It's that it was designed as, a, as something that really thoroughly and I hope thoughtfully deals with an original idea. And most blog posts aren't supposed to be that. That's really interesting because that's... Um, not how I view my role at Dorf on Law, for example. When I, when I blog at Dorf on Law, I do once a week, effectively. Um, I actually tend to write um, about things that are fairly original. Um, you know, I, well, to the extent any of us write anything original about constitutional law, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, but, but for example, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, I wrote a thing about Justice Scalia and his legacy. And I put together a very long list of reasons. I don't, I'm not asking for your agreement on this, why we should not honor this man. And I did it in a way that no one has really yet done. Uh, and, that, and, I, and, I, and I blamed Harvard. Again, I'm asking for your agreement. That I love Steve Sachs. He's a friend of mine. I've debated him five times. Um, he's now the Anton Scalia Professor of Law at Harvard. I don't think Harvard should have a chair in Scalia's name. It doesn't matter whether you agree. It was very widely read. It was picked up by a lot of people. And it's being discussed. And to the extent I cited cases that Scalia wrote, opinions he discussed, public appearance he did, it, ha it could have been published as a law review article, uh, you know, an online law review article, for example. And it was pretty long. This, it's never scholarship for blog posts. I'm just not sure about it. And, and other, other blogs other than yours write much longer, meatier blog posts that sometimes feel more like articles. I'm not going to die in this ditch, but... Right. Yeah. Well, let, let, let me elaborate a little bit yeah. further on this. Yeah. So to be scholarship, it needs to be, I think, to be valuable scholarship, it needs to be three things. First of all, it has to have an original idea. Mm -hmm. Second, it should be the result of sustained thinking on the subject, including thinking after one writes the first draft. Sure. Go back over and say, you know, what, what do I really think about it? You know, I put it out this way, but on reflection, I realize it needs to be modified in a particular way. And third, it needs to be presented in a place where people, not just today, but in the future, can easily find it if they're looking for scholarship. So generally speaking, at least my blog posts, sometimes I work on them for a few days. Usually I just write them up. Uh, but even if I work on them for a few days, I work on them, I put them out. It doesn't represent the same kind of sustained thinking. Often it's based on thinking that I've done for years in the past. Sure. But the post itself doesn't represent that same kind of sustained thinking. As it would if I put it aside, edited it some, maybe beefed up some parts, maybe broke up some other parts. Uh, um, and uh, 
And then also when I post it, people find it in Google and occasionally they uh, they cite uh, uh, blog posts, of course, these days in law review articles, sometimes even court opinions. But that's not where people look, generally speaking, to find scholarship. They look on Westlaw or Lexis. So I think if you write something really original, that's fantastic. They'll make an extra interesting blog post. Then, well, I shouldn't say you, 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 have, you have your own approach, but what I would do yeah. is I would come back to it if sometime later and think, well, you know, can I beef it up some? Can I, can I develop it some? And then eventually publish it. I'll give you an example. Um, at one point, I got interested in this question of whether there are state public accommodation laws that ban discrimination in public places and public organizations based on political affiliation. I remember that. I mean, that was very interesting. States. You blogged about that. Yeah. Right. We know many states ban discrimination based on race, uh, religion, sex, and such, and places of public accommodation. Federal law also bans the bill only in a very narrow range of places based on, I believe, race, uh, I want to say religion, and national origin and color. Um, so, and now sexual uh, orientation. By, uh, pardon? And now sexual orientation. Federal Title II bans discrimination no, based no, on sexual orientation? Well, no, but public title, accommodation. Title, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Strike that. Right. Go ahead. I should have been truck. Go ahead. Um, so, uh, so I wrote it up because it was relevant to some people, what some people were discussing. And then I think I elaborated on it further. And then I got an email from the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty saying, you know, you have anything interesting right. you want to publish? And I thought this is an excellent thing to do, to, 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 to publish for that. Yeah. It's not really analytical scholarship in the sense of thinking through the arguments for and against. Right. It's really more descriptive scholarship, but it's also valuable, among other things, because a lot of these uh, 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 these laws, the great bulk of them are are city and county uh, ordinances, right. so they don't easily show up on Westlaw. So I I've searched for them, I know how to find them, and I did, and I did some, but then but then what I did is I took my blog post and I beefed it up. I realized that I was making some assumptions and assertions that made sense when I was just writing something up but that I need to provide some support for. I then filed, I, I was looking for for cases applying this, but these these laws aren't generally speaking interpreted by courts. They're generally speaking interpreted by administrative agencies. And a lot of them don't have their decisions on Westlaw. Right. But I learned that you can file Public Records Act, essentially Freedom of Information Act requests in various places. So I sent out uh, requests uh, to various places. Some of them said, we've never had any cases dealing with this. <laughs> And then Seattle, for example, said, oh, here's a, it was about 10 cases. And again, I, I developed the article further. I've edited it a couple of times. It's going to be coming out probably after one or two more editing passes. Uh, that's what I think one needs to do with blog posts that have uh, uh, something really original to say. I'll, I, that's interesting. And I will say, so every year we have to do, a, and it's really ridiculous, a citation count. Kind of, my, our annual report requires us to do kind of a quasi search for how often we've been cited um you know where i blog is nowhere and i know mike knows this is, is nowhere near as widespread as where you blog it amazed me how often my blog posts were cited not just in other law review articles but actually sometimes in opinions and books and other places it really shocked me in fact how, how often that occurred um one more question about the blog and but it's just that if you put if you publish the article yeah then it's not like they they'll have to look only on Westlaw. They can find your work, what, whether they find it on uh, on through a Google search or on Westlaw. Right. So, so 
Yeah, fair enough. That, that, that's um, even better. Even more citations. And remember, he who dies with the most citations wins. <laughs> uh, sadly true. Uh, very sadly true. Um, especially when we're very famous for citing each other. Anyway, um, one more question about this. And I asked this very question to you, I don't know, five years ago or six years ago. There was a big con law conference, a week-long con law conference in Atlanta. Um, a lot of people were here. You were here. Balkan was here. Kill Lamar was here, Kaczynski, Posner came in, Scalia was the Friday speaker. Um, and you and and you and Jack did a thing, you might not remember this, but you and Jack did a thing that included some discussion about blogging. Because Jack, of course, runs Balkanization, which is a very major legal blog as well. And in the hallway, I asked the both of you, why can't there be a blog that you have some of the most intelligent and thoughtful conservative libertarian scholars in the country. He has some of the most thoughtful, uh, you know, uh, liberal progressive scholars in the country. And you guys do talk at each other sometimes and reference each other's work. I thought this then, but I think it even more now. Wouldn't it be helpful if um, people of differing political persuasions could write at the same place on the same issues in respectful and civil, my podcast, I've been trying really hard to get people who disagree with me, I, you know, as often, not every podcast, but as often as I can, because um, that's more interesting to me. And I think it's good role modeling for students, for lawyers and for judges that you and I may disagree on a couple things, probably a lot of things, but we've always, I think, had a good relationship and respect each other. Why shouldn't the world see that? I, I just think that's a good idea. You and Jack both said at the time, no, that wouldn't work. It's not important. We do talk about each other's work, and we, we have our big tents, but they're not that big. Do you still feel that way? Well, you know, I'm open to a lot of ways of doing things. And if you think about it, historically, uh, different respected mainstream media organizations have taken different approaches on this. Mm -hmm. So many newspapers used to have the view that they want to have a wide range of op-ed op -ed columns and a, uh, from a wide range of views. And I think that's still true for some of them. At the same time, there were also magazines, which I think were serious magazines that treated contrary views respectfully uh, and thoughtfully, substantively, but that definitely had a particular perspective. So the New Republic on the center-left, the National Review on the center-right, Reason Magazine is libertarian, lots of others, far-left, far-right. And, and my sense is there were some that also deliberately tried to be uh, to, to have a little bit from each. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, uh, one question that I think uh, 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 one might ask in this situation is, do you think your readers want to kind of come up with, if that's what they're looking for, a balanced presentation, do they want to have you present it to them, especially when it's free, when you don't have to subscribe and right. pay for multiple right. publications. Um, uh, and uh, Or would they rather say, look, uh, there's a liberal blog and there's a conservative blog, and I'll visit both, but I want to know that when I'm looking for a conservative position, perhaps because it's a counterpoint, uh, I've seen somewhere a liberal position, I'm looking for the counterpoint, I'm going to go to that blog, and vice versa. So I think a lot of readers like that. We thought that by having something which is generally kind of centered to the right and to the libertarian side, we're providing a useful service to our readers. 
and sometimes we give them perspectives that I think they don't expect. And I think they value them especially because if, if most, most of our readers, I imagine, are conservatives or libertarians, uh, and to the extent that they kind of trust us as a result because we are their people, they'll particularly trust us when we come out on a different perspective than, than uh, they might have thought. Um, so I think there's a value to that. This having been said, if someone wants to put on a group blog that's deliberately uh, uh, deliberately has a wide range of different views, uh, that would be lovely too. I, I think the more the merrier in this kind of... Uh, this, this, blog, kind of this, this podcast is kind of trying to do that and not, doesn't have a big right. reach yet. And I wonder if for podcasts it might be different mm -hmm. because I think the value that you're providing is that people are actually talking to each other and not in a metaphorical way, the way written <laughs> right. work may be said to be talking to each other, right. really talking to each other. Yeah. And I think listeners appreciate hearing not a lecture uh, or a spiel, right. but a conversation. Uh, and there, it's particularly good if the conversation is, as to, is among people who don't really fully agree with each other. And also then, they will sometimes also hear, not all, sometimes, but when they're listening to you, they will hear conservative one day, liberal another day, and then presumably that's because that's what they're looking for. Right. Uh, I, I lied. I had one more question about blogging. Um, do you, you don't, you don't, you don't review all of your blog, I mean, all the, the posts that appear on the Vala conspiracy, do you? I mean, if, if my friend Jonathan has any of the posts that appear in the Volley Conspiracy, uh, except my own, and even those, sometimes I don't really review. I just type <laughs> out and send out. Right. It's the only way this works. Right. Uh, I wish I had fewer typos in my posts, but I don't really have the time, except <laughs> yeah. for some very rare ones to really yeah. edit them. And then also when I have guest bloggers, I sometimes sure. review a little bit of, sure. just in the process of, of reformatting them. But no, uh, I select my co-bloggers uh, and then they write whatever they want to write. I, I do want to say I, I do read your blog regularly. And um, I think actually there are surprisingly large number. I mean, I mean, this is a compliment. There are large number of occasions when the quintessential libertarian or conservative view uh, is not being expressed by you. Ilya Soman, I think, often writes things that aren't conservative in the traditional sense. I think Adler sometimes does that. I think a lot of them do that. I think that's a great service, by the way. And I get your point that when, when someone like that says something that is not traditionally thought of as in that camp, it has even more weight to it. So I do get that point. I think you underestimate. I mean, I think that happens a lot, actually, on your blog. And I, I respect that. I think that's a good thing. Well, thanks. That's what, that's what we aim for. Yeah. Um, okay, let's turn to some law. <laughs> um, so I read a little bit, not a lot, of your work on social media and free speech. And I find this issue extremely interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. I actually, um, uh, there was a symposium at Mercer about a month ago, and I was part of that and kind of wrote the introduction to it. Um, so my first question is, and let's keep this at the policy level for the moment. We'll get to the con law issues in a second. So um, the famous Section 230, which basically says Facebook, Twitter, large social media um, websites are not liable for harmful, illegal, defamatory speech on their um, websites. As a voter, are you in favor of that or are you against that? So, so far you've identified Section 230C1, yeah. which is the most important part of 230. And uh, it's been tremendously important. It's what made... Facebook and uh, 
uh, Twitter and YouTube and probably Google as well possible. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, how can you feature user-generated content right. uh, as a platform if you get modest amount from each thing that's posted? A lot, obviously, from, from, right. from the aggregate, modest amount from each, but you could be sued for millions of dollars because something that's posted is defamatory. Um, so I think it was tremendously important in making our current ecosystem exist. And I think it's probably still important in making it, keeping it healthy. So on balance, I think it's probably a good idea. There's no question that it, uh, uh, it uh, has costs as well as benefits. It has the vices of its virtues. The virtue is it lets everybody speak. And the vice is it lets everybody speak, right? <laughs> Including people who say things that are not just harmful, but in fact, constitutionally unprotected, for example, because they're defamatory. They're false factual allegations about a particular person. Now, of course, people can still sue the person who's posting it. Right. Uh, but they can't sue the platform. Whereas in the earlier newspaper era and, uh, uh, and broadcaster era, they could sue the newspaper and the broadcaster for, say, letters to the editor and the like. And as a result, newspapers were more careful about the letters to the editor they published and or the, even the ads they published sometimes. Um, so, uh, so on the one hand, this is really important to allow lots of people to say things they won't be able to say things they want to say, uh, including things that are valuable, both politically and sort of personally to them and the readers. But it also allows them to say things that are defamatory, that as a practical matter, the law isn't going to do much to stop because a lot of people are judgment proof, a lot of people can't be found and the like. So do we think on balance that's a good idea? Can we think of some intermediate position that tries to deal with that? Should we have, for example, what some people call a notice and takedown approach? Which is what Europe like has, which is what Germany has, property. I believe. I believe Germany has that. So it's possible. Um, I, 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 don't, uh, I find it hard enough to wrap my head around the law of one country. <laughs> Fair so I can't speak with any confidence about multiple. No, I learned that from so, a European law professor a few weeks ago. So, yeah. <laughs> so you could imagine a situation where uh, the rule is, uh, hey, uh, Google, uh, you can return whatever search results you want. Uh, Twitter and Facebook, you can allow people to post whatever they want. Until someone notifies you this material is libelous. And then you'll be on the hook if you don't either remove it from your service or at least not linked to it. The downside, of course, to that is that somebody who's sufficiently litigious uh, uh, can say, OK, fine. Anytime somebody says anything that's critical of me, I'm going to send this demand right. uh, to, to, to Google, let's say, and say, de-index or else I'll sue you and maybe make a million dollars. A million dollars is nothing to Google, perhaps. But if enough people <laughs> like me do it, right. then, then they, yeah, they, they might listen to us. Uh, so one example that I often give along these lines is Scientologists. So the Church of Scientology is, of course, a very controversial group. It also has a reputation for being quite litigious. And uh, uh, if uh, you had a notice and takedown regime, my guess is that that a lot of things that criticize the Scientologists are basically not going to be available. So, Eugene, that's all really interesting. And I know you're not somebody, I think you're not somebody who's ever going to run for office. So I'm going to ask again a question I don't think you answered. <laughs> If you if you were a voter or you were a member of Congress, I, I take it from your comments, you would likely vote for two for two thirty C one, I assume. Yes, I think right now it seems better than the alternatives. Okay, I think that's the same thing. I'm well aware of the cost that it imposes, and 
You know, if somebody comes up with a still better alternative or or can show that the cost is a lot higher than I thought and the benefits are a lot lower, I think this is something that's got to be on the table. I agree with that. Um, okay, let's move to another First Amendment issue, not speech, but religion. It's been in the news a lot recently. This whole idea of religious exemptions from, from, from laws that apply generally. Um, why don't you just... Right start by talking about the Smith case, how that changed everything, your views on the Smith case, and then what's developed since, which is a lot to ask, but I know you can do that, just so well, we get, get speed. Well, I think I have to start with the Sherbert case. Sure. So in sure. the early 1960s, basically the liberals on the court, spearheaded chiefly by Justice Brennan, um, uh, led the court to adopt a rule that religious objectors generally get exemptions from even from neutral generally applicable laws at least unless giving them the exemption would be just way too burdensome way too harmful so uh, so one example that came up in the early 1970s in a follow-on case called wisconsin v Yoder is amish uh were willing to send their children to school up until the eighth grade but the state of wisconsin required them to send their kids up until they were 16, so into high school. And the Amish said no. Not only did they not want to have public schooling, they didn't want to have any classroom schooling. To them, the education of the children would be immersion in the community and the work and the vocational training that the Amish community would right. provide. Right. And uh, the court said by an eight to one vote, you know, following this 1963 Sherbert v. Werner decision, which was the first one that was bred in opinion in, in Sherbert, um, we we say that the free exercise clause requires Wisconsin to exempt uh, uh, religious objectors from generally applicable laws, at least unless denying the exemption is really necessary to serve a compelling government interest. And maybe if they said we won't educate our kids at all in any formal setting, that might there might be a compelling interest in preventing that. But there wasn't a compelling interest in those extra two years of education. Uh, and uh, then lower courts, for example, uh, applied this uh, in one case to say that uh, people who object to jury service uh, on religious grounds are entitled to an exemption. And, and some of the time courts said, well, no, there is, a, uh, there is a compelling government interest. So, for example, there was a case called Bob Jones University where um, uh, Bob Jones had a racially discriminatory policy for its students abandoned banned interracial dating. They were... Uh, uh, threatened with denial of their of their tax exemption, they said, "Well, we have a constitutional right to practice our religion." And the court said, "Well, there's a compelling enough interest in banning uh, race discrimination in government-funded or government-supported higher education." Um, so then, in the 1980s, Justice Rehnquist, who was very conservative, and Justice Stevens, who at the time was seen as a moderate. Towards the end of his the time on the court, he was seen as a liberal, maybe because the court shifted, maybe because he shifted in some measure. Or the country uh, shifted. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I do think he shifted some. But at the yeah. time, he was seen as a moderate. Both of them um, wrote opinions at first, just, just one justice opinion saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. Uh, this is not really a judicially administrable rule. Justice Stevens sort of stressed that's a rule that unfairly privileged religion was his view. And therefore, we should undo that. But it was very well settled. Then in 1990, in the Employment Division versus Smith case, basically, conservative majority 
Rehnquist, Scalia, and Kennedy, and at the time Kennedy was seen as a solid conservative, you know, towards the end of his time on the court, he was seen as sort of a more of a centrist conservative. At the time, he was seen as quite- Just so the, just so the non-lawyers watching this or listening to this know, this was before Kennedy um, voted not to reverse Roe, and it was before Kennedy voted to invalidate prayers at graduation ceremonies. So his shift right. hadn't begun yet, really. Right. Um, so it was the three conservatives, plus Justice Stevens, Justice White, who were centrists on the court, yeah. who said, you know, the Stevens-Rehnquist position <laughs> of equal treatment does not violate the free exercise clause, only discrimination against religion violates the free exercise clause. That is uh, the right approach. And the dissenters were Justice O'Connor, who is a centrist conservative then, and um, uh, uh, Justices Brennan, Marshall, and Blackman. So still very much a free exercise, this broad reading of free exercises, religious exemptions, was very much a liberal perspective and sort of equal treatment without regard to that. Uh, it was a conservative perspective. Um, then, uh, three years later, Congress nearly unanimously uh, uh, with, um, with broad support from the left and the right, both advocacy groups, and I think it was spearheaded by Orrin Hatch on the right, Ted Kennedy on the left, yep. enacted the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was meant to restore this legacy of Justice Brennan in this respect. Uh, the Supreme Court held that that was constitutional as to federal government, but not state government. But then many states enacted similar provisions. And uh, um, on top of that, also some states read their state constitutions the way that Justice Brennan would have read the federal constitution. What was it, what's interesting, the last few years, it's the conservatives on the court that have taken up Justice Brennan's position. Right. And the liberals on the court <laughs> uh, that have taken up Justice Scalia's position. Yeah. So now we're very close to Employment Division versus Smith being reversed. It hasn't quite happened, although it's been cut back quite massively in six justices, five of the conservatives, uh, all but Chief Justice Robert, plus Justice Breyer from the liberal wing. Six justices have said, yes, we ought to replace Smith with something, although we're not sure with what. Right. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so it looks like Justice Brennan's handiwork will be back, but this time courtesy mostly of the right on the court rather than on the left, of the left on the court. I, I want to make two observations. One, um, I do want to emphasize, and again, no one has criticized Justice Scalia, I don't think, is. Maybe some as much, but no one more than I have. I think Smith is, his, my, my personal opinion, his high watermark. I, I think he was right in virtually everything he said in that opinion. Um, but here's my question for you. And it's kind of a sideways question. And, and when I've asked this question of other religion and speech experts, it's often ducked. So I hope you don't duck this question. I don't understand why federalism concerns completely vanish when it comes to individual rights generally and free speech and religion specifically. So so I think one of the virtues of Smith, though it wasn't part really of Scalia's opinion, is that this is a hard question. Um, Michael McConnell has done the history. Hamburger has done the history. They disagree. There's no historical answer to this. I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, so when we tell, when the federal government, whether it's Congress, the president, or the Supreme Court says to states, you have no choice but to accommodate religion in this way. It strikes me that that's an anti-federalist position, yet people concerned about federalism don't look at it that way. I, 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 it's very rare you read an article about 
Smith, right or wrong, good or bad, what should we do with federalism concerns injected? But I happen to believe very strongly, as I think you know, that the Supreme Court should rarely interfere with all 50 states, absent clear textual you know, inconsistencies. Do you have a feeling or a reason why federalism is never discussed when it comes to state laws like this? I don't see it discussed very often in this conversation at all, and I think it should be. Sure, I have two words for you. Yeah. William Brennan. <laughs> it wasn't just him. It was him and the liberals on the court in the 1960s yeah. uh, that basically voted in, to apply the Bill of Rights, not in its entirety. There are a few still exceptions, but basically that to the states. Um, the, the earlier rule of, uh, was that the 14th Amendment only requires uh, um, states to follow certain kind of core principles that are fundamental to, core Bill of Rights principles that are fundamental to ordered liberty. Right. That was the view of many on the court, including many of the conservatives on the court. Um, but uh, the liberals on the court, uh, especially in the 60s, um, took the opposite view, both with regard to free speech, which had already been incorporated against the states, but also the criminal procedure amendments. That was the Brennan's Court criminal procedure revolution, both broadening the scope of some of them, but also taking some principles like the exclusionary rule under the Fourth Amendment and various rules under the privilege against self-incrimination and the like that were seen as only applicable to the federal government, applying them throughout the whole country. And I take it part of the view was that, that there were some states, especially in the South with regard to blacks, but also in other places as well that were uh, that were being highly oppressive to, uh, to to many of their citizens, in, especially ones that were accused of crime, and that something needed to be done to stop that. There was some pushback on that, for example, from moderate conservative Justice Harlan, Justice Rehnquist as well, who's sort of arch conservative. Yes. I'm yes. just using it descriptively, whether you like his views or not. And I think Justice Rehnquist is the last one on the court who really would kind of even talk about that. But by the 70s, the, it was over. The battle was over. Occasionally, you might have some people who are thoroughgoing originalists who say the battle is never over. Original meaning should always trump, notwithstanding precedent. Justice Thomas is an example. But Justice Thomas also takes the view, which I think is a supportable view, although some disagree, that in fact the original meaning of the 14th Amendment was to incorporate basically all the rights provisions of the Bill of Rights. Uh, against the states. So one way or another, it's just like, you know, at least for most of the other justices, but even for the originalists, you can't keep fighting the same old battle. Once it's been definitively lost, uh, um, uh, again, to Brennan et al., uh, it's it's kind of over, and then you just proceed as if uh, as if they were right, because that's the precedent. But, but Eugene, I, I really wasn't asking about incorporation, though I understand why you, why you answered that way. Um, I'm willing to accept incorporation. I'm talking about something different. Let's agree that the First Amendment in its entirety applies to the states because of incorporation. Let's even agree that's correct. What I'm talking about is how it applies to the states. So just the, the, the most obvious example would be if we're going to apply the First Amendment to the states, prior restraints are obviously unconstitutional. I think all historians agree that was the most important original meaning of the First Amendment. And if the state of Georgia required me to submit my op-eds to them before I publish them, I think that would be a real problem under any interpretation of the First Amendment if one accepts incorporation, which I think we, we now do. I'm asking a different question. The free exercise question is hard. It's just hard. The, the history is, is contested as opposed to the prior restraint. You know, the history is contested. 
We've gone back and forth over the years. Nothing's been well settled forever. Sherbert was 1963. It ended in 1990. That's what, I'm bad at math, 27 years. That was our entire experiment with this. Why wouldn't someone who claims to believe in states, right, I'm not talking about you, but, you know, a, 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 a scholar who feels strongly about states' rights, uh, Instapundent, I think, would fall in that category. Um, I'm guessing he's wildly in favor of constitutionally required exemptions, for example. And I, I, I'm sure he is. I would bet my the ranch on it. Um, Glenn Reynolds, yes, I'd bet the ranch on it. Uh, I don't know, I own a ranch, so I can bet that. Anyway, my point yeah, is... Yeah, you to say. <laughs> my, right. My point is, why does federalism... Not, not in the not in yes, it's incorporated. But when we're talking about striking down a state's law or requiring a state to do something it doesn't want to do in the individual rights arena—guns, speech, religion, whatever it is—why doesn't federalism kick in there? That's what I don't really understand. Well, I think there are two components to this. One is once you say the Bill of Rights is incorporated against the states, and once you say that that means that the provisions mean the same thing against with regard to state laws right. and federal laws. Then reading, say, the First Amendment narrowly isn't just a state's rights matter. It also upholds federal power. So really, the question there isn't so much states' rights versus not states' rights. The question is, should you have more deference to the democratic process with regard to individual rights questions, whether it's at the federal level or the state level, or less deference? So again, that's an interesting question. Again, Justice Brennan largely won that in many respects, <laughs> at least as to the uh, expressly protected constitutional rights. Uh, so, uh, so I don't think that that's that's really a states' rights question as such. But there's a second point, which is very, very few people that I know categorically support states' rights. Uh, uh, for example, very few people think that states' rights should allow states to regulate really interstate commerce, including in other states, without any possible interference from Congress. Very few people think that states' rights means states should be able to make war on others. Now, of course, there are some uh, some specific uh, yeah. specific constraints, but, but there are such constraints. So really, even the states' rights people, when talk about congressional power, they may say congressional power should be somewhat more limited than it is now. But by and large, especially as a matter of constitutional entitlement, they think there should just merely be very broad power rather than virtually unlimited power. And in particular, I think today, um, supporters of states' rights have reconciled themselves to the notion that there ought to be broad and largely uniform protections for individual rights that should apply throughout the country because we're all Americans and all Americans are entitled to the basic rights of Americans and because most of them are also on board with judicial supremacy, they think that, uh, um, that uh, uh, those rights should generally be defined by courts. So it's just like very few people say states' rights even with regard to foreign relations. Very few people say states' rights, even with regard to coining coins and printing money, very few people say states' rights, even with regard to expressly guaranteed constitutional rights under the Bill of Rights. Maybe more should say that. It's perfectly plausible to say that more should say that. It's just that's not where we are, in part because of the triumph of the liberals in the 60s with the notion that there ought to be a substantial minimum of constitutional protection for expressly secured rights that's offered to everybody throughout America. 
for what it's worth, I happen to think, and I haven't totally, um, exp- I haven't totally explained this in detail, but I, I have a little bit in, in, in my books. I actually think that unless there's a clear constitutional violation, much clearer than the Supreme Court requires, I think there's a, a lot of merit to Justice O'Connor, your justice, the ideas she expressed in Raich, which wasn't an individual rights case, it was a, a commerce clause case, but still, that we should let the states experiment. I feel, you know, Eugene, there's no one more pro-choice than I am, I don't think. I met my wife giving a talk at Planned Parenthood. I am devoted to Planned Parenthood all the way down. I contrib- contribute to them. I, I think that abortion is not clearly forbidden by the Constitution, and I think the states should be allowed, New York should be allowed to legalize it, and Arkansas should be allowed to, de- to make it illegal. Um, it pains me to say that, and I, I would prefer a constitutional amendment enshrining abortion as a right. But leaving all that aside, I think there is a difference between saying the Congress can't do something um, and we're going to make a uniform national rule for all 50 states that no state can avoid. And maybe it's kind of the reverse of what Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, but I still feel strongly about it. I think unless the error is clear, why shouldn't we allow states to experiment? And, you know, and if people really hate it, they do have the right, formally anyway, to move. Um, I think Justice O'Connor felt that strongly in a lot of cases. And I, I sympathize with it. Am I crazy? Do you think I'm well, nuts? you know, there's a perfectly plausible view that much more should be left to the political process, whether federal or state. Yeah. Uh, and there's also a perfectly plausible view that even if you have incorporation, it should be limited incorporation. Yes. Incorporation simply meaning the application of the Bill of Rights to state and local governments through the 14th Amendment. The last vestige of this kind of the, the same provision means something different for federal and, uh, uh, and state governments actually only went away um, uh, uh, only went away uh, last year. Uh, and that had to do with unanimous juries. Right. The Supreme Court has long said right. that the Sixth Amendment uh, requires jury unanimity. For a long time, it said the Sixth Amendment jury trial just doesn't apply to the states. Then, in a case called Apodaca, Excuse me. Then the court said it did apply uh, in the, I think, the late 1960s. And then in a case called Apodaca in 1972, I believe, the court said by a 5-4 vote, and actually by a 4-1-4 vote, where <laughs> eight justices agreed that the rule should be the same for state and federal, uh, four said it should be unanimous juries required for state and federal, four said unanimity of juries is not required for state or federal, even in criminal cases. And one said different rule, I believe it was Justice Powell, different rule for state governments than for federal. You know, just, just... And then in 2020, the Supreme Court finally, notwithstanding stare decisis, overruled that decision. And it was, a, a, the dissenters were a combination of conservatives and one liberal. They were uh, uh, Alito and Roberts joined by Kagan. And then the majority, written by Justice Gorsuch, but joined by uh, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and in relevant parts, really, by Kavanaugh and by Thomas as well, said, nope, same rule, jury unanimity required, part of fundamental American values. Oregon, Louisiana are the two outliers. Well, too bad for them. So, again, I appreciate the force of your argument. Many great people have made this argument before. It's just it hasn't carried the day on the court. When you said conservatives are always liberals. When you said four one four, reminded me of Justice Black. I think it was Justice Black. Before eighteen year olds were given the right to vote in the Constitution, I believe there was a four one vote 
on whether they had the right to vote in state elections with four, with four saying the rule had to be the same, four saying it didn't, and, and Justice Black was the deciding vote, and he went and he said the states don't have to abide by it. I think that was also a 4-1-4 vote, if I remember correctly. Oregon versus Mitchell, maybe. I may be wrong, but anyway. Um, That's my vague recollection, too, but it's not my field, so I can't vouch for yeah, it. Yeah, okay. I, I, um, one more question about religion, um, and I'm running out of time, but we'll, we'll get to it. Um, the Establishment Clause. All right, so... Um, I don't think the Roberts Court has ever struck down a law under the Establishment Clause. I don't think. If it did, it was very early on. Um, and I think... Not that I recall. Yeah, I don't think they have. So that's 2006. So that's at least 15 years. Uh, I think it was before that even. It's it's basically a dead letter. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't... Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not sure what lower courts are doing because I haven't looked at that in a while. But in the Supreme Court, it is hard to imagine these justices finding anything that would violate the Establishment Clause, that wouldn't also violate the Free Exercise Clause. Um, no, I don't think that's right. Give me an example. Um, so so uh, just some of the things are relatively uncontroversial. I'll give you something that uh, uh, lower courts have dealt with, and the court has never agreed to hear this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are uh, um, uh, some... Uh, uh, the, the, in various prisons, there have been rules that say if you were in prison for some drug or alcohol related offense, uh, then uh, you need to, uh, when in order to be released early, you need to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous or something along those lines. Sure. And at least many such AA programs have an important religious component. Yes. It's not terribly denominational, but there is the sense of higher power and there is talk of God. And courts have generally said that that is coercion of religious practice. And because you're being told that you have to engage in religious practice uh, in order, even a very mild religious practice or a very generic, let's say, religious practice in order to stay out of jail. That's actually an important principle, uh, not terribly controversial in lower courts, hasn't come up to the U.S. Supreme Court because there's no split. I think if it came up to the U.S. Supreme Court today, they'd probably say, yes, the Establishment Clause prohibits this kind of coercion. I'll give you another well, example. Hold on, hold on. Why wouldn't well, that violate the Free Exercise Clause? Well, because generally free exercise of religion has been read as meaning that you can't be ordered to do things that are inconsistent with your religion. But for many people, it's not like they say it's inconsistent with my religion to talk about a higher power. I don't have a religion. Maybe I'm not even such a thoroughgoing atheist that you might think of that as kind of a religion that is right. forbidden from uh, uh, that forbids me from doing this. It's not like I have tenets of this religion. I'm just somebody who's not religious, and I don't want to be required to do something religious. So you might say, well, let's read the free exercise clause more broadly. But historically, this kind of coercion of religious practice has been seen as violating the establishment clause, and I think the court would be perfectly happy to, to, to apply that. I'll give you another example. Um, so uh, there's a long-standing doctrine on the court that says that courts cannot make essentially religious decisions, such as What's central to this religious religion's belief system? Right. Uh, uh, um, uh, What is uh, what's orthodox by way of the uh, the religion? So let's say some state has a rule, which I think was the old common law rule. So some states did have it that when there's a schism in a church, the property goes to the more orthodox uh, version of the church. Not because orthodoxy is not because orthodoxy is always better. And by orthodox, I don't mean like 
Russian Orthodox, yeah. or Jewish <laughs> Orthodox, Orthodox in the sense of traditionalist. Yeah. But because probably the people who donated the money in the past did it in reliance on the church having the views of the past. And the court, uh, starting in the late 1800s, as a, as a common law rule matter, but, but uh, 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 then throughout the 1900s, as a constitutional matter, said it violates the Establishment Clause. They talked about religion clauses, but the clearest home for this is the Establishment Clause to say, yes, this religion is the real Baptist, and this is just a splinter schismatic <laughs> Baptist. Uh, so that, that's an important Establishment Clause principle. Another important Establishment Clause principle is no discrimination among denominations. Again, you could fit that within the Free Exercise Clause, but the lead case on the subject, Larson v. Valenti, was an Establishment Clause case, and I think the court uh, would go along with it. Uh, I'd, like, I'd, I'd, just... I'd like the court to do it once, maybe, <laughs> but, but I get that. Um, I'm keeping you a long time. Thank you for coming on so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank and you I, very much for having me. I always enjoy talking to you, and it's really great. Thank, thanks Likewise, a lot. Likewise. All the best. Okay, bye. Thanks, bye.